Hydrogen is an element that, in addition to being superabundant throughout the known universe, is also widely available in our own solar system, including here on Earth. Stars like the Sun are made of plasma hydrogen, while much of the hydrogen planet side, on Earth-like rocky planets anyway, are merged into compounds with other elements, making things like methane and simple sugars and water, which is H2O, the H in that formula being hydrogen. Considering this near ubiquity then, it's fortunate that hydrogen can also be useful for energy generation purposes. Fossil fuels like gas and oil and coal are potent for this purpose, but also come with a slew of downsides, including their carbon emissions and the pollution that results from burning oil and coal in particular. But they're also geopolitically fraught because these resources are only found in suitable abundance in certain locations around the world. And much of the modern economy, including which nations are wealthy and which are less so, comes down to where fossil fuels were discovered when and who was in the position to exploit these resources and at what scale at pivotal moments in history. Ultra-abundant resources like hydrogen, then, are interesting because of what they are, but also because they present the potential to separate energy production and natural resource distribution. We've all got plenty of hydrogen to work with, theoretically at least, so random geologic chance and historical resource grabs would probably influence a hydrogen-driven economy significantly less than they've influenced our current primarily fossil fuel-driven economy. The tricky part of making such a switch is that we've built the modern world around primarily fossil fuel energy sources, and that means everything from our cars to our homes to our manufacturing capabilities are reliant on burning fossil fuels. Hydrogen as a straight-up fuel is similar to petroleum or natural gas in that you can kind of just burn it to extract the energy it contains. Compressed hydrogen, which is the most common version, for this use case, as hydrogen at sea level and room temperature isn't terribly energy dense, has to be kept under significant pressure for shipment and use, but can in some cases be basically swapped in for other fuel types in existing applications, like internal combustion engine cars and some types of manufacturing machinery. And then that's that. These machines, these cars, will still work with just a different explodable fuel type inside and maybe a little bit of refurbishing or replacing of a few components. The other most common hydrogen fuel variant is used in fuel cells, which, rather than using exploded hydrogen to generate mechanical energy, combines hydrogen with oxygen alongside an electrolyte, and that produces electricity and water. The generated electricity can then be used to power a car or other device, while the water is generally an emission, a byproduct, but occasionally also tapped and utilized because it is pure, clean, drinkable water. And sometimes that is a very desirable thing to produce as a kind of a bonus, especially in drought-stricken areas or for manufacturing use cases where water can be used as part of the process, for cooling equipment, for instance. But you can also produce water and electricity for a village in the middle of nowhere at the same time using this basic piece of infrastructure and some hydrogen. 
What I'd like to talk about today are different types of hydrogen, how they are made, and the implications for this fuel type at a moment in which renewable energy sources are rapidly replacing their fossil fuel-based ancestors. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, The Fight to Define Green Hydrogen with Billions of Dollars at Stake. There is a spectrum of different hydrogen fuel types, all of them the same in terms of chemical output, but distinct in terms of how they are produced. And important for understanding what that means is understanding that hydrogen, though it can be subbed in for petroleum and even jet or rocket fuel in some cases, hydrogen is not directly compared to fuels like coal and gas in most contexts. Instead, it's more commonly compared to batteries and pump water energy storage. Natural gas and coal and oil are energy carriers. They are the compressed energy of dead organic things stored ages ago underground. But we tend to think of them as energy resources because we are not generally storing new energy as oil or coal. You probably would not generate a bunch of electricity using solar panels and then try to store that energy as newly generated petroleum. Instead, when we generate electricity by burning oil or by capturing photons using solar panels or by tapping the wind using turbines, we store that energy in batteries or we store it by pumping water uphill or into a water tower, reclaiming that stored energy by allowing the water to run back down from the tower, spinning turbines that recapture that stored energy later. We store it by compressing air underground or by lifting heavy things and then dropping those heavy things back down slowly later when we need that energy, recapturing a portion of what was stored in various ways at that later time. Hydrogen is abundant throughout the universe, but on Earth it is not common as just hydrogen. It's almost always a part of something else connected to other elements to make other stuff. Thus, the process of separating hydrogen from all that other stuff, whatever that stuff might be, is an energy-intensive process. So just like lifting water into a water tower or compressing air underground, the process of separating hydrogen from other things into pure hydrogen is a means of using energy that we have created from coal or wind or some other energy source and storing it, because that separated, purified hydrogen that we expended that energy to produce to separate it from other elements can then be used later by burning it to create mechanical energy or using it in fuel cells to produce electricity and water. So hydrogen, for most practical purposes, this is a good heuristic to use, is more like a battery than it is like oil or gas. And because of that, just like the source of the energy we might store in a battery is important because that determines whether the energy is clean or not, produced in sustainable or polluting emissions-generating ways, so too is the nature of the energy we use to separate hydrogen from other stuff into pure hydrogen important. This is where the aforementioned hydrogen spectrum comes into play. 
The various colors of hydrogen, though not literally the color of the hydrogen, as all hydrogen produced in this way is exactly the same. It is a clear gas. These colors are labels that tell us what sort of energy was used to produce it, and thus what sort of energy was quote-unquote stored in it when it was made. For a long time, because of the nature of global energy supply chains and the available technologies and know-how, we mostly only made black and brown hydrogen, the former produced by bituminous coal, the latter produced by lignite coal. The main distinction here is that black hydrogen is made from a blacker, higher-energy type of coal, while brown hydrogen is made from the dirtiest, most polluting type of coal, which is also brown-tinted. In some countries and contexts, the brown and black hydrogen labels are used basically interchangeably, though almost always to refer to hydrogen produced using the gasification method to derive hydrogen from the burning of fossil fuels, which in all cases will be highly CO2-emitting and in some cases will be highly polluting as well. Gray coal is also derived from a fossil fuel, natural gas, generally using a process called steam methane reforming. And though less emitting than coal or oil, it still produces CO2 emissions and is sometimes associated with truly horrible methane emissions because of how leaky natural gas infrastructure, like pipelines, tend to be. This is currently, as of 2023, the most common type of hydrogen fuel produced globally, with something like 95% of all hydrogen fuel production currently using the gray hydrogen approach. Blue hydrogen is also made using natural gas, but it's used alongside some type of carbon capture and storage infrastructure, which means at least some of the CO2 produced in the process of making it has been soaked up and hopefully stored long-term somewhere though the deployment effectiveness and storage methods underpinning such systems vary substantially from place to place and company to company. Some of these systems work great and are assiduously maintained, the carbon they capture stored permanently, while in other cases they technically have gear that can do this, but they don't use it or they don't use it well, or they do not store the CO2 appropriately after soaking it up. Turquoise hydrogen is similar to blue hydrogen in that it is derived from natural gas, but it's distinct in that rather than using carbon capture and storage hardware to tuck away the resultant gaseous CO2, it uses an approach called methane pyrolysis that splits methane into pure hydrogen and a solid type of carbon, which obviates the risk of emitted CO2. The downside is that while this approach gets rid of potential emissions from the split methane, it requires electricity to function, and that electricity is sometimes derived from fossil fuels rather than renewable sources, which kind of negates the sustainability benefits. This approach is still somewhat experimental, but we could see broader deployment soon as new incentives to shift to renewables are deployed and renewable energy sources become more common around the world, at which point natural gas suppliers could redirect some of their output for this use case to avoid having to reduce production and miss out on potential profits as the green energy shift continues to move forward. Purple, pink, and red hydrogen are all produced using some type of nuclear energy. Purple is made using nuclear power and heat to fuel electrolysis, which is the separation of water into hydrogen and oxygen. 
Pink also uses electrolysis, but it is powered by electricity generated by nuclear power plants instead, and red hydrogen is produced via the high-temperature splitting of water using the heat produced by the nuclear power-making process. Yellow hydrogen generally refers to hydrogen made with solar energy, with that energy usually powering electrolysis. White hydrogen is found naturally, usually in underground deposits, and is very rare. As again, natural, pure hydrogen just doesn't happen very often because it is so prone to blending with just about everything else instead. Gold hydrogen is often found in depleted oil wells and is produced by fermenting microbes. This is interesting because it can be produced artificially by adding such microbes to abandoned wells, the microbes breaking down hydrocarbon residue that would otherwise just sit there unused. Though this breakdown process also produces CO2 as a byproduct alongside hydrogen, so it requires some type of carbon capture and storage method in order to be carbon neutral, which adds additional expense and complexity and risk. And green hydrogen is the much vaunted hydrogen of the future as it's produced using solar or wind or geothermal or some other type of green, renewable, non-emitting energy source, usually to power the electrolysis process, splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. Green hydrogen is still rare. And so are basically all the other colors I just mentioned, except again for gray, which has become very dominant. And all the facilities producing hydrogen for fuel purposes in the world right now are either gray or very small facilities producing different types of hydrogen in experimental or proof of concept fashions. Also worth noting is that these color labels vary a bit depending on where you go and who you talk to, and they are regularly revised and sometimes overlap. Yellow hydrogen, which is made from electrolysis powered by solar power, is also technically a type of green hydrogen, for instance. It's just a more specific type. Though seemingly a bit finicky, and in some cases arbitrary, who cares which component of the nuclear power-making process fuels the splitting of water into hydrogen and oxygen? After all, these distinctions are increasingly important, even though the ultimate output, the substance itself, is the same across the board. As more incentive programs meant to nudge society away from polluting and emitting energy generation methods and toward renewable sources arise, the specifics of how hydrogen is made matters more and more. It can mean the difference between getting billions of dollars in government money and not getting any money at all. It can also mean not being able to sell your hydrogen to as many customers in as many countries as you would prefer, as more regulations related to sourcing roll out. Most immediately in the EU, but other countries and blocs and businesses are looking at such policies as well, which has led to more policing of the sources behind the energy they purchase. The raw, non-regulatory economics are also increasingly vital to this conversation, as renewable energy sources are becoming just incredibly cheap, staggeringly quickly. New research shows that it's cheaper to build brand new solar and wind projects from scratch than to continue operating almost every single already built coal power plant in the United States. Only one of the 210 coal power plants in the U.S. is cheaper to continue operating than replacing it with renewables, which is just a boggling figure and something that will lead to some fundamental shifts in the energy landscape in the coming decade.
This differentiation is also important in areas where the debate about nuclear power's role, or non-role, in our green energy future is especially heated. While nuclear power doesn't emit greenhouse gases, which are the gases that amplify the effects of climate change, it does produce nuclear waste, which varies in dangerousness from potentially a bit bad to super crazy bad and bad for thousands of years. This is something the EU is struggling with right now, actually, as France, which relies heavily on nuclear energy, wants nuclear-derived hydrogen, the purple, pink, and red kind, recognized as clean and sustainable and essentially equivalent to green hydrogen, while other governments, like Germany's, have said such fuels should not receive the same pride of place, the same benefits and subsidies as truly green energy like that derived from solar panels and wind turbines, because of the waste it produces, even if the waste is not of the greenhouse gas variety. This labeling system is also important because hydrogen is considered to be a sort of missing piece in the current clean energy deployment plan. Most clean energy involves the use of emission-free methods of producing electricity, but electricity, though useful for pretty much everything, is less useful for things that require huge energy outputs all at once. So manufacturing processes like making steel, which we can kinda sorta experimentally do with electricity but not demonstrably on a large scale yet, that requires a whole lot of energy. And a whole lot of other manufacturing processes also require what amounts to explosive levels of energy and very high temperatures all at once. And accomplishing that, and other high energy tasks like flying planes and launching rockets into space, are tricky. Without the high temperature burning, high energy density, explosive force generating fossil fuel like energy types, we've come to rely on and have oriented our technologies and industries around for so long. Hydrogen, when compressed, can serve these purposes. And already these industries are working on reorienting toward the use of hydrogen, which means there will be customers ready and waiting when the production of fuel hydrogen is scaled up. We just want to make sure we are not sending them a bunch of hydrogen made using fossil fuels. That would kind of eliminate the point of the whole hydrogen production exercise. So just as we're beginning to see all sorts of solar and wind and other renewable energy infrastructure roll out across the planet, much of it plugged into large-scale battery facilities and other energy storage infrastructure, it's likely a lot of these energy sources will also be tapped in the near future for the production of hydrogen to serve that same purpose, so that the energy produced can be used over time consistently, not just intermittently when the sun is shining and wind is blowing, but also for that latter-mentioned purpose of creating a fuel type that we can use for those high-energy-density requirement use cases like blasting rockets into space, and powering our jets and steel-making facilities. The challenge is going to be in ensuring hydrogen can be produced in a way that avoids replicating the issues clean hydrogen production is meant to solve, while also making the process as cheap and safe as possible, which will be tricky at first, as this is a highly volatile substance. And that is true chemically, politically, and economically. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology by Chris Miller. 
This is one of those books that helps you understand why a whole lot of news items are actually important beyond the contemporary storylines that they report upon. And what I mean by that is the conflict between the United States and China, which is slowly building into a kind of Cold War and a realignment of the global economy and the global energy system, and even things like the internet creating various splinter nets, creating multiple worlds on the same planet, basically. Part of what's interesting and vital about that story comes down to the way these two countries have historically shared information and resources and basically have done business with each other while also cross-pollinating with each other in terms of research, in terms of fundamental technology development and things like that. That is something that is also splintering. And the chip war referenced in this book's title is partially about something that started under the Trump administration, where Chinese companies were systematically cold-shouldered and blackballed out of the global economic system and weren't able to get their hands on certain important technologies, especially semiconductors, microchips, but also stuff that's happened in the years since then, especially under President Biden, with a huge semiconductor ban that he put into place and several supplemental pieces of legislation as well, and some stuff that happened before that as well, back historically before the Trump administration. So this is one of those great big stories that brings the history into the present, but also shows what we might expect in the near future, in the next couple of decades. And a surprising amount of that bigger story can be seen in microcosm form in how these two countries are trying to deal with each other in increasingly aggressive ways in regards to this fundamental technology, this thing that is put in everything from our cars to our computers to our toasters, and which is fundamental as well to the development of next step technologies like artificial intelligence and all sorts of military technologies and so on. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Chip War by Chris Miller. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts or at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.